0: Hey, well, let me uh, encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we jump into 1 Timothy chapter 5 again, and we're going to pick it up in verse 9, and you're going to see it on the screens, so and we're going to stand in honor of the Lord today. Paul writes and says this, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the husband of one wife, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith." Besides that, they learned to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they shouldn't. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, gang. Good to see you guys. People online, good to see you as well, kind of. And uh, I'm glad you're participating, but I can't actually see you. You can see me, though. And most importantly, you can see a copy of God's Word, we hope. And so we're going to all need a copy of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to be. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and as you're turning there, let me just introduce myself. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. I just met some folks that are new, and so if there are other folks that are new out there, I would love to meet you. I usually hang out in the lobby at the end of the service. Would be glad, delighted to uh, hear your story and see how we might help you get connected at Doxa, and uh, as well, as you're turning to 1 Timothy 5 and you go to Doxa Church, um, I would love to ask a favor of you. Uh, By God's grace, uh, there will be about four of us leaving tomorrow morning on a two-week trip to Uganda to consider some church planning partnerships. And so if you think about it, over the next two weeks, if you could keep, it's myself, I'm going, and uh, we're taking two of our interns that just graduated, and I will be preaching about 14, 15 times over the span of about nine days and then dragging them along to preach as well. And the goal is that in Uganda, we can foster a long-term partnership towards church planting for the next, let's call it 30 years. There is already, um, I want to say, in the teens amount of churches that are kind of been planted out of the hub, which is Lugogo Baptist Church, which is where I'll be preaching next Sunday. And uh, through that church, we're looking to partner with other like-minded churches and plant some churches in pockets that are entirely Muslim-dominated and hopefully that will be a part of the legacy of Doxa Church is that we would get to participate in something like that. And so as is common with things like this, they want me to go out first, make sure we're legit, and uh, hopefully I don't screw that up. And uh, if I cannot do that, then we'll be able to send teams in the future. My goal is that our whole church, being mission-minded, gets to go various places around the world. If I had my druthers... I would want a partnership on every continent towards church planning for the glory of God. I'm always thinking big, but why not, right? Why not? So this is the one that we have uh, been given the opportunity first and foremost through a member of our church who's been serving in Uganda since 2006, and we hope to see that now become a partnership with DOXA. So would you pray for me the next two weeks? Fantastic. That would be awesome. Oh, pray for the interns too. They're scared to death. Let's do that. Okay? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> have no idea what to expect. I'm like, listen, always be ready to preach, pray, or die, okay? That's how it works, and I'm dead serious. So, they're terrified. Let's help them. Let's help them. Okay, title of the message this morning. The Church's Guide to Widow Care Part dose. The Church's Guide to Widow Care, Part Two. One of the things Timothy has been given from Paul is this idea from the very beginning of the letter that the reason why Paul's concerned with the church's order and conduct is because the church's order and conduct communicates something. It communicates to the church what God values But it communicates to the outside world who God is, what his heart's like, what the gospel is, right? That in some way, by the way we order and conduct ourselves, we are proclaiming both internally and externally basic truths like Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And all God's people said... God has a vested heart in those who are sinful and broken and beaten down, and so the way we conduct ourselves as a church communicates that reality to, let's just be honest, to where we are right now, which is to a cancel culture world that is basically what we're living in, correct? And you think about a cancel culture world and when our conduct doesn't appropriately uh, communicate what God wants the church to communicate, what happens is it gives credence to validate our culture's unbelief as they can continue to pick at little discrepancies that they find between the church's behavior and our book, right? Nothing fuels them more to be, see, aha, that's why I'm not a Christian, look at you guys, The difference between your conduct and the Christian faith that you say to believe are so different y'all look like hypocrites, right? Something like that. And it validates, it affirms, it confirms their unbelief when they can see that all of this isn't as consistent as your book makes it seem. And so Paul has honestly been concerned the entire time, really about the fact that if our conduct doesn't, isn't in line with the scriptures, if our behavior isn't in line with the book, it weakens our witness. And that same theme is true as we get to widows. If we don't properly take care of widows, it doesn't properly display God's heart to the world. Widows, the subject that most of us uh, confessed two weeks ago that we've never heard a sermon on widows ever in the history of our Christian faith. And I was frustrated about that. Because if we're honestly being faithful as shepherds to preach and teach God's word, it's 14 verses in First Timothy, right? This isn't some obscure book of the Bible. The fact that we've never heard a sermon on widows shows that we've evidently, Thought that's not as important. It's not as relevant. It's people won't come and listen to that. Well, I shame on that whole mentality. I am not interested at all in what you guys want to hear. <laughs> I love you too much to pull you guys to decide what you think would be nice and make you come back. I want you to know God. God and I want you to know his word, and I want you to know what he values, and he values widows. His heart for widows goes all the way back to the Old Testament. When a woman would lose their husband for whatever different reason, God himself says he takes up primary responsibility of care for that widow, Psalm 68, 5. We shared a passage out of the law from last week in Exodus 22 that says, hey, anyone decides to like exploit widows, which, by the way, the Pharisees were exploiting widows, weren't they? They were kind of going into some widows' houses and they were doing some exploitation work. He goes, hey, in the Old Testament, Exodus 22, it makes it really clear. He says, you mess with widows, I'm going to mess with you, and you never want God to say that. You don't want to be in a position where God's like, I'm going to mess with you now because you're messing with those who I'm entrusted to care for in this position God is serious about widows, his heart is clear. Jesus, one of his miracles was raising a widow's son from the dead. James, in James 1.27, says visiting widows in their affliction is the heart of pure and undefiled religion before God. By the time you get to the early church, okay, the church got planted, didn't have a bunch of programs, what did it have? Apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the, come on, come on, come on, come on, the prayers, right? And then eventually, this is me praying. Did you not see that? You guys pray differently? <laughs> is it like this or what? Shall I Tim Tebow again so you guys know we're praying? And the prayers, right? And the prayers. And, and the first thing that gets added of all the ministries to add is a ministry to, you guessed it, widows. And then, because of all this development, it's no surprise that we get to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and find such a lengthy portion of Scripture regarding widows. We talked about three to eight two weeks ago, and we said, listen, here's the clear call of Paul. Church, widowed family members are whose responsibility? Yours. Widowed family members are your responsibility. You are the first line of defense for someone in your family or your circle of responsibility to be taken care of. That's you. And listen, you need to take that responsibility seriously because to deny that responsibility is to deny the faith and you would be worse than an unbeliever. Why? Because even unbelievers have the decency built into them being image bearers of God to know they should take care of their own. So if we as Christians entrusted with so much more, the gospel of God's grace, the reality of Christ crucified for sinners for the forgiveness of sins, the gift of his mercy going to undeserving sinners, the least we can do is pour into those that are in need. And so we saw that the first line of defense is that widowed family members are your responsibility then, but then we saw for the widows that slip through, that don't have family, that don't have a circle that's able to take care of them, that line of kind of defense after that that sort of picks up those widows is the church. And we discussed this and we said, listen, helping every widow is a may. Helping true widows is a must. As Christians, helping every widow, awesome. But helping certain widows is a must, and true widows were the ones that Paul says we are to care for in the church, and the true widows defined by two qualifications. Number one, they were, verse five, left all alone, truly destitute with no other option, no other means, nothing was entrusted to them, no family to take care of them, no job, no opportunity, left all alone, and so passionately in love with the Lord Jesus Christ that they have fully committed themselves to God to for everything that they need. All of their provision, they believe, is coming from, entrusted to the Lord. And so they've leaned into the Lord and they've been left all alone in such a destitute state. And now what we're gonna see in part two in verses 9 to 16 is we're gonna drill down deeper into the process of widow care. Evidently, there was a problem with so many widows coming on and the church being overburdened by how many there were to take care of, that Paul encourages Timothy to press back on the church to own the responsibility you guys need to own in order for the church itself not to be overburdened. So we're going to look at this, and we're going to talk about how we care for widows doing it as a body. Here's the big idea for this morning. Corrective clarity, because that's what this is. Paul is correcting what's been going on. We're not surprised to see that word because we know the entire letter of 1 Timothy has been one big correction, has it not? One big correction. Corrective clarity for the church's widow enrollment program. Paul lays it out very straightforward. For points, for application-oriented points that come screaming out of the text, In the form of commands, here's the first one, follow the qualifications, okay? We're gonna take care of widows, we're gonna follow the qualifications. Here's our command. Let a widow be enrolled. That's a command. Enroll them. Put them on the list. What list? Great question. Evidently, in the early church, there were signs of some sort of a kind of sort of official order of widows. And, and they were legit, right? It even matches a little bit of what we're going to see is it matches sort of the qualifications kind of idea that we saw with elders. And then we saw with deacons back in chapter 3, right? This official order of widows that was identified in the church and was identified in church is in the first century were kind of being enrolled and had qualifications to meet. This uh, order of widows wasn't necessarily all destitute, meaning they were all enrolled for support. Some of these widows, for sure, had resources left to them But this order of widows also likely served as a pipeline for those truly destitute to receive support. So it wasn't that you were enrolled and automatically received support, but this is for those who were in a category that we're going to describe in just a second that either needed help or certainly wanting to be involved in this serving role function in the church to the greater body. And so Paul says, hey, let them be enrolled. Command, enroll them if they meet the qualifications. And what are the qualifications? Well, we see a few. One has to do with their age. One has to do with their um, relationship with their husband. And one has to do with good works. And so we're going to look at these. Let a woman be enrolled, or excuse me, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Okay? Now, for us, I get it, 60's the new 50, I feel it out there, okay? I see you guys, you're looking great, all right? Well done, I don't know, what is that lotions or what is that, you know, it's exfoliating, it's fantastic, and so you guys are looking good. And, and so you're like, man, I don't know, this is insulting, 60, I could like fit in this, you know? Um, y- here's what's going on, 60 was kinda like that high number where um, you were getting old, okay? But like one of those things where like you know social security is right now, right? When do you get social security? Like 60, 65, right? Is that right? Okay, and um, and like it's drying up fast. Like is our generation gonna get any of that, right? No. Someone said no. Because now the 65 year olds are living to what? Old. Y'all are old, real old. All right. So so. So when I say 60, it doesn't translate as much, but think like, you know, older when I say 60. Like, options are limited. Like, probably not going to get on the market again, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Tracking? It's actually key. It sounds like I'm joking, but it's really like the key part of this was like, when you hit 60, it was most likely that you weren't going to get married again. You were like... You're going to bless us in other ways. (laughs) Bless the community in other ways. Don't think I don't try to exercise (laughs) self-control. That was hard for me right then, but I did it. It was retirement age, but for them, it was that last part of life where you were unlikely, and the key was unlikely to get remarried. And so these people... um, that were to be enrolled, were to be in that kind of stage of life. How that would transfer to today would probably look different if you're catching my drift based on how much older people are living till. Nonetheless, that was appropriate. That's why that's there. Then it says this, having been the husband of one, or excuse me, having, that's the 1 that's the, um, Timothy 3 language, right? Okay, so come along with me. I just made one of my points, which is it's the same language reversed. Come on, come on, come on. First Timothy 3, husband of one wife, which we said literally in the text was a one-woman man. Okay. Now it's saying you're a one-man woman. Got it? So what are we talking about? You are the, you were, that's the idea, having been, you were the wife of one husband. We don't need to get into all the details. What does that mean? You can only be married once? Dealt with all that stuff in 1 Timothy 3. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is you were a faithful spouse in a faithful marriage. Enroll that person. You were devoted to your husband. Enroll that person. You had your eyes and your heart on the man you were married to. Enroll that person. They're not less than 60, and they loved their husband. Enroll that person. And then do it like this, consider their good works. Here's another qualification, not less than 60, having been faithful to one husband, having a, here it is, reputation for good works. In other words, you say this gal's name, and everyone's like, oh man, she's the best. That gal is everywhere she serves so faithfully, she loves so well, she prays so hard, she counsels so deeply, she's always there when you need her. Her reputation precedes her. That's what's going on here. Now, what I want you to understand about this example that he's going to lay out, first of all, it's worth emulating, ladies in particular, This is worth emulating what he's going to lay out. You have a reputation for good works. There are five elements to these good works that he focuses on, okay? Five of them. Here's the first one, raising kids. You want to see true, godly, biblical femininity? You'll see it in a mom who delights to raise her kids. You'll see it in the word here, raising is the word nourish. They nourish their children. Paul's again pressing on this idea that this is the general pattern or norm for biblical women to raise your kids. This is the great privilege that women have been entrusted. This is the great mark of your salvation that should be known as a general pattern in women, this goes back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 when it says that women will be saved through childbearing. And we got really confused until we understand that see, the story of every believer is that you were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. Do I need to say that again? The story of every Christian life is that you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Come on, that is profound and deserves an amen to the Lord. Justification, you were saved by faith, right? Alone, in Christ alone, all your sins forgiven. Sanctification, you are being saved. This is where the salvation of 1 Timothy 2.15 is talking about your sanctification. So what is the life of a godly woman fleshing out sanctification? Where does that happen? It happens in the context of childbearing and childrearing. That's the glorious place that the Lord has given to women. Now, I do need to say and understand that a woman not given the privilege of having kids for sure is not a lesser woman. That God's grace extends and meets those kind of exceptions There are even gifts that are given to ladies that are not connected to having kids, such as 1 Corinthians 7 would talk about, and you have the gift of singleness, which is the gift of kingdom devotion. So don't see yourself as, man, my whole life has fallen apart if this is not my story, but see to it, ladies, that you understand this is the general biblical pattern, and it's glorious, and it's good, and it ought to be something that we gladly embrace as believers. This one that had a reputation for good works raised her kids. The second thing we see here is that she showed hospitality. See, so many moms, it's like, man, what am I doing? What am I doing for the kingdom? It's laundry load after laundry load. It's spill cleanup after spill cleanup. It's a, an attempt to do a quiet time, and it was anything but quiet. And just the whole thing goes on, but see, the, 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 the godly woman leverages exactly where she is for mission-minded work to the glory of God. The first thing she notices is that her kids are that first line of discipleship for the next generation. So she is pouring into those kids, because here's her commitment, we are not going to lose our own. Over my dead body, are we going to lose our own kids to the world, And then she's like, you know what? I'm at home a lot, but I'm going to redeem my house. Because I know when we think about hospitality, you're thinking pottery barn and restoration hardware, okay? But it has nothing to do with that, all right? You're like, I can't be hospitable. It's too expensive, you know? It's not like that. It's not like that. The whole notion of like the Christian culture of hospitality has nothing to do with that. You know what it is? It literally means love of stranger. That's the word. It means you open your house up because you're so mission-minded. You understand there were people in that time coming and going as missionaries for the Lord Jesus Christ. People were moving around trying to share the gospel, and you're like, if it'll help you to stay at my house so the gospel the gospel can be shared, then you're in. I don't have anything pottery barn. You know what? Pottery barn didn't even exist in the first century. But it's like, you're welcome to stay here. If you need to, so I would, I am going to be so grateful for the ones that are practicing hospitality next week when I'm in Africa. Because they're going to open up their homes and I'm going to stay there. And it might not be as great of a sleep as I would get at home. (laughs) But I need to sleep while I'm there. This is a mission-minded woman. Then it says, she washed the saint's feet. This is the kind of woman you should be. This is the one that's getting honored. This is the one we're commanded to enroll. The one who raises kids, the one who shows hospitality, the one who washes the saints' feet. Did she, you mean literally? Maybe. Wouldn't have been above her. But in all reality, this was likely, especially when it's generally applied to the saints. It wasn't like she was literally washing every saint's foot. But again, could it be that she was washing saints' feet? Again, wouldn't have been above her. When we see this and we understand how the terminology gets used, it's kind of a euphemism or it's a figurative expression of this symbolic act of service. In other words, what's being said here is this woman saw needs and no matter how humbling, no matter how costly, and no matter how inconvenient they were, she was willing to meet them. There wasn't something that she felt was above her. She was willing to sacrificially lay her life down for the sake of the saints. It was something she was active in. And she cared for the afflicted. Affliction here has to do with pressure. Pressure put on people, pressure from their circumstances, pressure from poverty, pressure socially, pressure in these ways. And this gal came in and said, you got pressure? I'm gonna meet your pressure. Financial pressure, if by God's grace I can help with that, I wanna help with that. Food pressure, you don't have enough food to eat or you need something to eat or I'm gonna provide for you in that way, great. Food, pressure's the food, you take care of it. Kids care, maybe this person was stepping in because young moms, there's almost days where you go close to crazy, And I feel that because then you let the dad be like with the kids for three hours on a Saturday and it's like, right? This guy was like, hey, how can I help? How can I serve? Where can I minister? Where are you pressured? Where are you feeling burdened? I'll meet that counseling. That could be it too. There's a burden on your heart? Yes, I got that. I will care for you. I will help alleviate that pressure that's put onto you. This woman was, then it says, devoted to every good work, which I love about that is that it started by saying you have a reputation for good works, and then by the end it says you're devoted to good works, which is to say this, your pursuit matches your perception by others. Isn't that great? That you're who you really are truly, There are some people that have a reputation that don't have a life that matches it truly, truly, truly. Or like you can show off a little bit at church and be seen as that person, but at your core you're not that person. This is saying you are that person at the very core of who you are. You are devoted. It is your pursuit. It is your practice. Everything that's been said about you, it's totally true to the very core of who you are. There is an hypocrisy in this woman That kind of woman who's devoted to good works, who raises her kids, who shows hospitality, who washes the saints' feet, who cares for the afflicted, who devotes herself to every good work, enroll that gal. That's the gal when you lose her and everyone shows up to the funeral, everybody's crying. You know what I'm saying? Because everyone was ministered to by this gal. Enroll these kind of ladies. And ladies, I want you to notice something about the list here. I want you to notice that this list is nothing more than really the standard for every woman. As the gospel comes in, good works comes out. You say, I'm a Christian. I would say, how? You would say, because I have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. In his person, the second person of the Trinity, take on human flesh, sufficient to die in my place, and in his work, he died on a cross in my place for my sin to set me free, that the gospel that was proclaimed about Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God regenerated my heart, evidenced itself in repentance and faith, and now gospel in means good works out. Yes, yes. in a world of such brash femininity, excuse me, um, this kind of, um, yes, (laughs) that was awesome. This kind of rebellious against the biblical patterns for women, be this kind of woman temptations for you guys, ladies, is to think that you only do this. I only stay at home. What kind of impact could I really be making? But I want you to notice what, in fact, didn't make the list that can often just get us messed up in terms of what our focus is. I want you to notice that what didn't make the list is education level. That there's some sort of, like, luring temptation that, like, well, you can be a mom and stay at home, but, like, do you have, like, a doctorate degree so you can feel better about staying home? You'll notice that there's nothing in here about education level. You'll also notice there's nothing in here about a corporate career. Like if you're really an ambitious woman, you will have a corporate career and somehow find a way. And I'm not saying you can't be an industrious woman. We know the Proverbs 31 woman was an industrious woman, so don't hear me saying that. I'm just saying it doesn't say anything about a corporate career that you managed to put all that stuff together. It doesn't say anything about a restoration hardware level income that's required for this, right? That's not here. What's here is raising kids, showing hospitality. Hospitality, washing the saints' feet, caring for the afflicted, and devoting to every good work, enroll that person. Which means, ladies, be that person by God's grace. Yes? Okay. So then what happens for the other women? How about the sub-60ers? What are we supposed to do here? Well, you'll notice the next command Paul gives is this number two, forbid younger widows from enrolling. You got to forbid younger widows from enrolling. He says in verse 11, he uses the word refuse. Refuse to enroll younger widows. It's the same word he uses in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with. Refuse is a command here. Let a widow be enrolled in verse 9 is a command, and but refuse to enroll is also a command. He's saying don't sign up younger women for this official order of widow service that they had going on. Don't let the younger women do that. Now, here's what needs to be clear. It's not to say that there isn't a situation in which a younger woman would ever qualify for care, but it is to say, think about the circumstance for a second, okay? You're a younger gal, who is a widow, who's lost their husband, likely still probably pretty emotional, which would make sense for a good period of time. And I think what Paul is keeping against is this desire to make a hasty vow towards widowhood at a young age. Don't let young women do that. And you say, why? Well, because Paul's going to say there's two temptations for young widows if they make a vow too hastily. We're going to look at it. First temptation shows up in verses 11 and 12. So refuse to enroll younger widows. First temptation. Why? For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Okay, so what's going on here? Okay, well, let me give you a framework. There's a couple ways to understand this. Commentators differ. Three options I'm going to kind of lay out there, and it's probably some combination of several of these that we're playing out. So it's not like the right interpretation of this passage. We're going to get it by, I think, looking at a various kind of angles or ways that People have looked at this passage. The first option is kind of the basic understanding of what's going on in the passage, which is this enrolled women were making a pledge to widow service, okay? And if you were young, making a pledge to widow service, that pledge included a commitment to remain a widow, which means celibacy, right? Ladies, you remember this. Remember when you had that guy that was going to ask you to the prom, like at Christian school, you know, and uh, and you were kind of, you know, you were doing your thing, you're like, I definitely don't want to go with that guy. And so you're like, uh, when he asked, you'd be like, um, I'm dating Jesus right now. Do you remember that? Do you remember how you used that? You kind of said it like that too. Like, S- I'm dating Jesus. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm sorry. I just, um just kind of focus on my relationship with Jesus right now. It worked, didn't it? Spiritual and everything was so good. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, taking that vow was basically like saying for the rest of your life, you're married to Jesus. That was the strength of the vow. So you can understand now why if you all of a sudden were like those passions got going and those passions by the ladies, again, we're talking passions. If they got going because you're a young lady still in the prime of your life and you were desiring to be married and you were drawn away by those passions to be married, what would that look like when you had made a vow to marry Jesus? And he's not enough? Uh, you know what? On second thoughts, I don't want to do that and so I'm going to go after this guy. we know, gee, we can still, you can still be with me, Jesus. I still want a relationship with you, but I'm, I'm going to go this way. And so, what he's saying is, man, that, that can incur condemnation for having abandoned your former faith, or the way they would translate it in that understanding is pledge. You made a pledge to be a widow, and you're incurring judgment because you basically said, I'm committed to Jesus. I'm committed to Jesus. I'm committed to Jesus alone, alone, alone. Oh, hey, oh. Come along, Jesus. Whose passions are winning out right there? And it's throwing shade on Jesus. There's condemnation. That's a strong word. That's one of the ways to look at it. Here's another way to look at this. It says that their passions are burning, right? They desire to marry because it turns out that after some time you're still young, you're still looking around because... You're that age still, and you want to marry, but you've gotten so caught up in the false teaching going on. Remember the false teaching in 1 Timothy 4? They what? They forbid, come on, marriage. So because you kind of got stuck in all that false teaching, you desired to be married so you can do things that married people do, and instead, because of your bad theology, you went over and didn't get married because it was forbidden to be married, 1 Timothy 4.3, but you still wanted the perks of it, and so you engaged in that. And that, of course, is a massively hypocritical thing, right? And so you're, incur- you're incurring condemnation for walking out of step with your faith. Am I making sense? I feel like I'm making sense, but I don't know. Okay. Okay. The third option these passions, or you could translate it, lusts, leading to this promiscuous behavior where you're like, I will take anything. A guy, any guy, hairy guys, I don't care. Short guys, big guys, round guys, all the guys, I will take a guy, one guy, please, any guy. And so you would... And it's possible that you would even take an unbelieving guy because you're just that desperate to get married. So not only have you made a vow to widowhood, but now your passions are so drawing you away that the concern he's having, and you're kind of reconstructing the scenario, some commentators lean into saying, is it perhaps that the problem he was seeing was that Christian ladies that were committing themselves to widowhood were actually marrying unbelievers? And that that distinction between this and verse 14 is that this is about unbelievers, you know, women marrying unbelievers, verses 14 is about women marrying believers. So there's a whole slew of different ways to see this. The bottom line is it's clear these widows were making a pledge and they were walking out of step with that pledge and it was bearing this kind of condemnation for not walking in step with what they had committed to, either that pledge or their former faith. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying here. So they're susceptible to being drawn away to living in a a hypocritical life. And then it says the second thing that happens is this. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not And so Paul's basically saying, if you enroll these young ladies early, they're going to learn to turn their ministry into meddling. Why? Because getting into this program early, and it was likely that the church was shelling out funds, you had a job and you weren't doing that much. And so so even the idea of going house to house, there's a lot of people that will know that that was part of the ministry, right? These widows would go house to house and serving other families in a Titus 2 kind of way except when you're a young widow and you realize, I will be doing this for decades. I will be doing this for a long time. I want a little bit more fun. How do we maximize this little moment? By turning your life into a tabloid magazine. And that's what's going on here. You get into houses to minister to others, and you're picking up some arguments between husband and wife that uh, I bet Susie would want to know about. And then there's been that kind of shady thing when he came home late, and uh, I don't know about that. And and uh, you know they try to you know make their kids look all great on the surface, but they're losing their minds in the house. And you can have all this time to start accumulating information, and then you're bored to tears because you've enrolled to this widowhood thing for the next thirty plus years. And so you're like, hey, did you hear? And you're uttering uttering all kinds of the, the ideas, gossip, nonsense saying what you shouldn't, false rumors, maybe even false teaching coming through. You become these little conduits of verbal crud that just bleh. There's a temptation there. And Paul says this is a concern. Because what would happen is, and this really imbibed the kind of Roman world that they lived in, there was in the time, kind of like today, kind of a, we have sort of a liberal feminism that continues to grow, right? In that day, they had this, what they called the Roman New Woman, which was their version of feminism of the time, which was this idea of embodying this kind of sexual liberation and rejecting household responsibilities, and so what was happening is they were kind of picking this up. I'm going to kind of do what I want with who I want, and I'm going to reject the sort of traditional biblical values of household responsibilities, and then I'm going to kind of flaunt it around. And so as I'm ministering, not only are you picking up details that you shouldn't be sharing with other people and creating stories out of it, but you're also kind of acting as a living temptation in every house that you go and look at the freedom that I'm enjoying. I do what I want. I sleep with who I want. I'm, I'm out of the bondage of being in the home All of these kind of things were being picked up. And so Paul's like, hey, there's a real temptation here. So he goes, what do we do with that? Here's what he says. Number three, he says, fortify young widows against straying. Fortify them against straying. If these are the temptations at hand, if their lust, their passions would draw them away, don't let them enroll. Don't let them enroll instead here's the idea younger women in need but eligible for remarriage should plan on going the remarriage route young women in need okay this doesn't mean every young woman who becomes a widow has to get married again there's other ways if you have other means to provide for yourself but if you are in need as a younger woman Go the route of God's design anew, or in other words, here it is, return to the responsibilities of a godly younger woman. That's what he's going to say. Okay, here's the next play. Out of the morning, into the new season of life, Paul says this, so I would have younger widows, here it is, marry, bear children, and manage their households. In other words, what he's saying is if you're in need, the way to make sure that the church doesn't get burdened down is that the woman re-engages with the play that God's called all women to pursue to get back to God's pattern and so not be swept away by this new woman ethic. Now, when he says, so I have had younger widows marry, it doesn't mean you just get on that prowl ASAP, right? You're just like already assessing the market, trying to kind of figure out what like grade Christian man meat is out there. For example, like, okay, well, the Bible says, so I just need to start checking it out. Who's serving in kidsmen right now, which is not a bad place to look, by the way. (laughs) Okay, not a bad place to look. But he's simply saying, it's not like, oh, Paul says I can just go after it now, just ask everyone on a date. No, he's simply saying Don't be so quick to enroll in the widow program. My encouragement to you is go back the route of where godly women thrive. Go back the route of God's design for female flourishing. This is, of course, you have to remember in a context in which it was far less accessible for widows to have any sort of honest living. And so how were they going to be provided for? God's provision was women in their God-given role, caring for their husbands, caring for their kids, and supporting their families. That's where they should return. They should re-engage with God's good design, and that will keep them from straying. That's a good piece of application in general. Return to God's design for the way things are, and it will keep you from straying. Evidently, some already had been straying. See, because if they weren't following this pattern, they were giving the adversary an opportunity to be like, see, look at your witness. Look at this. You claim to be Christian, and look what you're doing. That's not in line with your book. And Paul's like, we don't want to give them any opportunity for this. If you're a young widow with the prime of your life still in front of you, and in time, likely, your passion Still doing their thing. Let's honor the Lord by going back the Lord's way and not signing up prematurely for this. It protects the church. It protects the church's reputation and it protects the church from taking full responsibility for a young widow before it's necessary. It positions you... Widow, young widow, gladly within the bounds of God's ordained protection and plan, and it proclaims to the world that you're not led by passions, you're led by principle, because you know the principle giver is a good God directing you in good things. And so the idea of freedom to the Roman new woman, the idea of freedom today, is freedom to do whatever I want. Freedom means no fences today. That's what freedom means. But listen to me, that is such a lie from the pit of hell. That is the worst Freedom is when you have fences around you that God has ordained and you walk in that area with joy. Okay, You will be a slave to someone. The free woman thinks they're free. No, you're not. You're enslaved. You're enslaved to yourself, minimally, but you are enslaved no matter where you stand. Everyone will be enslaved to something. Why? Because we're all worshipers. It's the way God's made us and we serve what we worship. So you are going to be enslaved to something. Here's what the Bible says. You are a slave, Romans 6, of the one you obey. Satan or God are your options, right? You can be a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin, but only in slavery to righteousness is their freedom. And so he says, this is the play. This is the way. This is good for the church, for its witness. This is behavior that matches the book. And then he finishes like this. Last part. He says, again, foster family responsibility. Foster family responsibility. He's already talked about that in verses 3 to 8. He's coming back to it again in verse 16. He adds, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Here's what Paul's been doing for 14 verses. He's been trying to place as many people as possible between a widow and the church's care. Do you see this? He is now taking and asking of Christian women, Perhaps even a widow yourself that has the means, you're now to take up the responsibility as well. You are another line of defense before this gets to the church. In other words, Paul's saying, you need to, church, exhaust every last option, taking responsibility wherever you can before it gets laid on the church. Why? So that in that way, when true widows are actually in need, and the ones that are most vulnerable need to be taken care of the most, we have the resources to be able to do that because we've adapted a care by committee sort of approach. We all take ownership, we all take responsibility, we all step in, we all use the means we're given by God to care for those who have need and then in the end it will not overburden the church. The command here interestingly is two things. Let the women care. Let the church not be burdened. It's easy for it to go right through the church people's hands. Not me, not mine, not my problem, not my problem. No, no, no. The responsibility is it's all of our problems, down to even women, perhaps in a similar space, caring for those that need it. This is such an interesting text. It's the first time, I love that, it's the first time I've ever heard a message on it is my own. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I know this, it's the best message I've ever heard on it, okay? (laughs) So I'm set on that. It's outstanding. One out of one. So good. But what I wanted to do for us is I wanted to tune our hearts to be reminded of the fact that what God's word lays in front of us is what needs to be our own passions. I know we come in being told, you, you can do anything and you all the passions you want. And, and sometimes it's really important to say, but God's passion's first. God's passion's most and God's passion's best in our lives. And I would venture to say that this is one that a lot of people haven't considered and yet it's a recurring theme on the Lord's heart. What does that say about our hearts? What does that say about my heart? Is my heart passionate in proportion to the Lord's passion? Think about it in any way. Is my heart passionate in proportion to the Lord's passion on these things? Listen, bottom line is we have a different scenario. We have different circumstances. We live in a different century. We have different opportunities. But here's what I want to make sure we display. We need to be a church that puts on display the mercy of our God in the way we care for our own. Let us be that kind of church stemming not because we do good works to be seen but because we know God's good works done for us in Christ when we didn't deserve it has regenerated our hearts, has purchased us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and now we have new eyes, new hearts, new passions, new affections to go after the things God's passionate about. May that be true of us. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, it is a great joy, um, as always, to get into your word. humbled afresh, Lord, about this heart that you have for widows, about how clearly it's put on display in this passage, Lord, about how much there is to talk about. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rightly apply even just the heart of this passage to our own day. Help us to be a kind of church where we all step up and we all invest and we all help when there's need and that we're not looking for the church to simply take on all of the burden, but we're actually operating in such a way that the church not be burdened because we're stepping into care. God, give us that heart because it's your heart, because it's reflective of Jesus' heart, and that's who we live to please. I pray you do that now in Jesus' name.